Our scripture reading this morning comes from a passage that is generally quite familiar to people. Um, When people start to read the Bible through, when they say, well, I'm going to read through, they usually get stuck in Leviticus. But everyone seems to be familiar with Genesis chapter 1. And out of Genesis chapter 1, these three verses, 26 to 28, are perhaps the most significant and outstanding. This is the sixth day of creation. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Our God and Father, thank you this morning for your word. Apart from what you have revealed to us in Scripture, there are so many, many things about the world you have made, about you yourself, above all, salvation in Christ, that we would have no knowledge of. So, Lord, use your Scripture this morning to enlighten us, and then motivate us to be those that you've called to be conformed to the image of your Son. This we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin this morning, I'm going to ask if you, do you have the handout? I've prepared a handout if you would, um, if those would be passed out and you would each give one of those. And I'm not asking you to read this instead of listening to the message. This is just a helpful adjunct to the message to explain some things which are just beyond uh, the capacity of time to, to present, and which, for the most part, well unknown uh, to people of our culture, to people of our day. So, this is connected to our sermon series for this year. Uh, the takeoff point for uh, what we're doing through this year Uh, really is is stimulated, the catalyst is the day of resurrection and the story of Jesus who appears to two of the disciples who are on their road to Emmaus. They're despondent, uh, they're depressed over everything that has taken place in Jerusalem because the one they thought was going to be the hope of Israel has been crucified, he's been dead, buried. And then uh, women, part of their group, have brought reports back that, that this Jesus has risen from the dead But they're still confused. They still don't understand. They still don't believe. And so they've left Jerusalem for Emmaus, seven miles distant. And Christ appears to them, supernaturally disguised, so they don't recognize him. And he walks along with them and interrogates them a little bit. Why are you so down? Why are you so despondent? And so forth. And they tell them what has broken their hearts. In Luke 24, 25 through 27, this is Jesus' response. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, now the word Moses there reflects the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, which would be inclusive of the rest of Scripture. He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So this passage entitles us, authorizes us, and encourages us to see Christ in all of the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's the basis for our sermon series through this year. Currently, we are look- we're looking at the first week of creation. And we're able to see how even in this first week of creation, we're able to see the presence of Christ there. We also need to keep in mind the original context, uh, the, the first audience for the book of Genesis. It was the Israelites. Uh, they have now come out of Egypt. And during the time of their uh, wilderness wanderings, uh, Moses is writing to them uh, these books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But understand that the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, has a very specific purpose because the Israelites themselves have been 400 years immersed in a pagan culture. The people of God don't know the God who has delivered them. The people of God don't really understand the ways of the God who has delivered them. The people of God don't really understand the world that God has created. Nor do the people of God really understand how they as human beings are supposed to treat one another. They've spent 400 years immersed in a pagan culture that in almost all of these ways is opposed to and which undermines the nature of who God truly is, the nature of the world, and really the nature of human beings and how human beings are supposed to relate to one another. They have been immersed in that culture. And even 600 years earlier, when Abraham himself, the father of the Jewish nation, came out of Babylonia, well, even there, that great culture was so thoroughly, thoroughly pagan. And then the culture they're going to go into, in the land of promise, all of the Canaanites, all of these folks are pagan, with a pagan understanding of the world and people and the gods. So the book of Genesis fulfills one of the primary purposes that we find Scripture was given for. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And so the book of Genesis is given by God through Moses to give the right kind of teaching to reprove the Israelites in the wrong ways they're thinking, to give great correction to how they think, and to train them in righteousness. 
how they're supposed to live. Now, the outline of what I want to say today follows the kind of rubric we've been looking at for the last several weeks. That uh, there's correction in what Scripture has to say. And then because of the theme that we're looking at, to see the connection between the passage we're looking at primarily and Christ himself. And then to wrap that up with the concept of calling, how all of that applies to us as believers in our lives today. So, uh, correction, connection, calling. Those three themes to support one essential large truth that we find out out of what we're looking at today, the big truth. What we have lost by sin, God has purposed to restore in Christ. What we have lost by sin, God has purposed to restore in Christ. Now, first of all, correction. The scriptures given to us for correction, and this passage in Genesis chapter 1 26, 27, 28, are a profound correction to how the ancient pagan world looked at human beings, as well as being a profound correction to how modern paganism and modern secular science looks at human beings today. And a key idea in those three verses is this concept of the image of God, the imago Dei, the image of God. Now, Before looking at the image of God, let's think about the pagan world that this message, first of all, comes to. Pagan myths, pagan stories of creation. Uh, The sermon, a handout that I've given you, uh, looks at the Egyptian creation story and then the Babylonian creation story. And these are taken from a very credible educational website about creation stories. But what you see in both of these stories is that out of the stuff that's already in existence, gods begin to emerge. Stuff's already there, and gods begin to emerge. And then these gods who first emerge are responsible for the creation or generation of other gods. And then rather quickly, as you read the stories, several generations of gods develop, and they have their battles, and they have their conflicts, and they have their struggles all of which deeply affect the world that is still in the process of being constructed. And then at the last part of these creation stories, you have how human beings come into existence. Now, what we need to see first and foremost, because we're interested in the creation of human beings this morning, is that whether it's the Egyptian creation myth or the Babylonian creation myth, human beings are an accident or an afterthought. Nothing in these stories look anything like what you read in Genesis chapter 1. Now, let me just say something as an aside here. And it's, it's one that needs to be said because... In the last decade and a half, as I have read the creation stories of these different cultures again and again, you will find uniformly in the books that are published by secular publishers, you will find by virtually everything you find on the Internet, 
you will find even some so-called Christian authors will say repeatedly, these ancient Near Eastern creation myths, the Bible story is so similar to those ancient creation myths. And I want to tell you that that is the worst form of scholarship. And it's the worst thing that a so-called Christian scholar could ever say in discussing these ancient creation stories out of paganism and the biblical account. There is incredible dissimilarity between these creation stories and what the Bible has to say. And it is a pernicious lie. If there was ever a lie straight out of the pit of hell, we say, it's that idea that the Bible story of creation owes anything at all to these ancient pagan creation myths. And yet that's the narrative that's increasingly creeping into the so-called Bible-believing church and scholarship of the day. I want you to know that anyone who has read these stories firsthand in translation with the Bible side by side, and I have read the Babylonian creation myth, which they say is the one that's closest to the Bible, I have read it all the way through, and the Bible's account all the way through, and they are not alike at all. And so I find it to be incredible that those who would claim to love the Scriptures and love Jesus would make such claims. Now, that was not prepared. <laughs> but it's hard not to get so exacerbated over the untruths that are being stated out there over things that are so incredibly vital to what we believe and how we understand the Word of God. Now, with respect to these stories, the first thing we need to see is that human beings are considered an accident or an afterthought. Nothing in these stories look like Genesis 1. Nothing in these stories look like the creation week. Nothing in these stories, contrary to the first chapter of Genesis, make human beings the very point of the story. The main purpose of the Genesis account, day by day by day, is to prepare this world for what takes place on the sixth day. And the sixth day is the crowning glory of all of creation when God creates human beings in his own image and then gives them dominion over the world that he has created. The pagan view of the cosmos makes the place of human beings to be small and insignificant. They're not part of a great plan. They're really accidental to the story or an afterthought that just comes along. And here's what we need to understand. The biblical way of looking at human beings gives dignity and significance and purpose and meaning to human existence. The pagan view of human beings makes human beings very, very small. There is no basis for any idea of human dignity in the Babylonian or Egyptian story. 
when human beings are either an accident or an afterthought. But secondly, the world that's described in pagan creation stories, they're not describing a world that is designed as a great place for human beings to live in. They're not, these stories do not describe the world as a place where human beings are going to flourish. Uh, these are not stories that give a picture of an originally good creation where human beings were designed to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to have dominion over the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the beasts of the land. These stories actually say that the world as it's being created is a mess. And, and the world that we currently live in is a mess. And so the world that we live in and the world as it was created, it's a mess and it's always been a mess and there's no promise, no basis, no hope for it ever getting any better. It is a world that's filled with chaos and moral conflict from the very beginning. It's always been that way. It is that way now. And there's no hope that it'll ever be anything other than that way. And that greatly affects how you're going to view human life, human purpose, and human meaning. You see, if the gods that have created human beings in the pagan mythologies are the gods of nature, nature has formed these gods, and they are part of the very mess that nature is in from the very beginning, and if you yourselves are created by these gods who are part of this mess, then you are part of that nature and you are part of that mess, then the meaning of life is, in fact, one of brokenness and conflict and strife. Life, then, is reduced to survival and living in the fear of death and attempting to stay on the good side of those powers to be that are more powerful than you are, whether it's kings and rulers or the gods of the skies, you wind up understanding you are a small cog and a great big wheel, and you don't really matter at all. Genesis story. Look at the contrast. It corrects paganism in all of these points with respect to all of these ideas. God specifically plans and designs human beings. They're not an accident of nature. They're not an afterthought. They're the very forethought of creation. This is why God creates, in order to create human beings who are going to be in his image. So God creates everything. He creates the creation week in a planned fashion to climax with the sixth day with human beings. They are the intended outcome of creation. All of the world created before them leads to them. So the point is, human beings are anything but an accident or an afterthought. They are the very forethought of God's creative and purposeful design. Now, what's the application of that? Human beings were in the mind of God from the very beginning. King David understood this. 
Psalm 139 is a personal expression of David's understanding that his own life was of the plan and purpose of God. Look what he says in the first three verses. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. The God who has created David is a God who's personally interested in David, who has a personal watch care over David and David's life. So, what's the application? God knows David. God searches out David. God leads David. God knows us. God searches out us. God leads us. But God's personal involvement, as David reveals it, is so much more intimate and deeper than we can possibly imagine. So we look at verse 13, 14, 15, and 16 in Psalm 139, which we read in the scripture of our service today. David says, For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me or ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, that's David's story. God has known him personally since he was in his mother's womb. God was actively involved in creating and knitting together his life when he was in his mother's womb. So David is clearly not an accident. And David is clearly not an afterthought. God planned David's life, all of David's life, all of the days of David's life before even one of them had yet come to be. You see the significance? Do you see the contrast between that understanding of life and paganism? David's story is your story. God has known you inside your mother's womb. God knit you together from conception on. God had his days planned for you before one of them ever came to be. You're not an afterthought. You're not an accident. You have mattered from the very beginning to an infinite personal, and eternal God. And that reminds us, declares to us, human beings are the greatest of all God's creation. We are the only ones who bear God's image. That image that, first of all, 
what we read in Genesis 126, 27, 28, where the word image occurs, it always re- reminds us of that for something to be an image of something else, it must resemble that other thing. And so God created us in such a way that we'd, we would resemble who God is. And God is not a force of nature. God is the ultimate person who's created everything. So all the things that we see in the personality of God and what he does in Genesis chapter 1, his creativity, his rationality, his purposefulness, his moral perspective and saying that all of this is very good, the social nature and relational nature of God. Because in Genesis 1:26, what does God say? Let us... Make man in our image. And there is God speaking within himself, which we know from the New Testament perspective is the doctrine of the Trinity. There is God speaking within himself about the creation of us. We resemble God in those kinds of ways. And then God makes us as his crowning glory upon earth and gives us dominion over the earth so that we are God's representatives on earth. Uh, to, to reflect God in all of creation as to who God is by how we are to be. And then he creates us male and female so that we have this relatedness one to another, even as within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have this intimacy of love and communion together. But the most significant thing is this. In bearing God's image, we are the crowning glory of his creation. We are the greatest of all things which God has made. You can't find what we are in nature. The image of God occurs nowhere else in all of God's creation except in us. Paganism, on the other hand, sees human beings as simply a continuous part of the nature and cosmos that exist. So there are the gods, they're just greater than us, they're not different than us, they just have more power than us. And here's nature yeah, it's, it's not different from us. They just don't have all the power that we have. But the biblical view, correcting the pagan notion, is this. Human beings, though we may have part of our existence connected to nature, we do not have our nature defined by nature. It's God who defines us as those who bear his image. One final thing about paganism that Genesis 1 corrects. Human beings were not created out of conflict and strife and struggle. Everything in the creation week is patterned. Everything is orderly. Everything goes according to God's plan. In the very beginning, there was complete and full harmony between God and his created order. All of his creation in harmony with God, especially those who bear his image. All was very very good in the beginning. And that's very different from the pagan creation stories. Nothing was ever 
very good in the beginning. Nothing gets any better as the world continues. The pagan creation stories essentially say this. Things were broken in the beginning. They're broken now. And they're broken to the end of the world. Things broken stay broken. There is no future to hope for where things might be rectified and straightened out and fixed and corrected. There is no future in which there might be a return to the very good that God once created because in paganism there is no very good that the world starts with at all. Now the Bible story then unfolds in a very, very different direction. And that direction then is the connection between Christ and the creation of human beings. Christ, according to the New Testament, is connected to the book of Genesis and human beings in two ways. First, Christ is God. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things created by him, through him, and for him. Now, that means that in the presence, uh, that we can see the presence of Christ in these verses from Genesis chapter 1. When, when it says, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness, that reflection within the Trinity includes Christ. Christ is part of that conversation. It's Jesus right there, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit saying, let us do this. Let us make this in our own image, after our own likeness. And let us give to these that we have created this world and dominion and authority over this world. Second connection, though. The New Testament tells us that Jesus Christ is the image of of God. Back in Colossians again, verse 15 says, He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God. In other words, the very thing that God made human beings to be, the image of God, this is what Jesus, the Son of God, became in his incarnation. Second reference, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Christ, who is the image of God. So two facts we need to think about. Connected with the, fact, with the truth that God in Christ, Christ himself is the image of God in his incarnation. God, first of all, God creates human beings to be image bearers. And when the Son of God takes on flesh... When he becomes a human being, he also takes on the very being of being the image of God. And what are the implications of that? Well, first of all, it had to be that way. When the word of God took flesh, 
He took on true humanity. And that which is central and characteristic and defining of true humanity is created in the image of God, bearing the image of God. That's what separates us, defines us, makes us different than nature. And because Jesus was the sinless Son of God, He is the perfect image of God without sin. A perfect resemblance. A perfect representation of God on earth. Now that's what Paul is talking about. The passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where in verse 6 he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God was fully revealed, fully manifested in the presence, by the very presence of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect image of God. That's why in this discussion that Jesus has with the disciples, the day before, the evening before he's crucified, Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. And Jesus responds to him, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still don't know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And which is why the beginning of John's gospel, uh, this, this idea of seeing God in Christ and seeing the glory of God in Christ is one of the preliminary themes that John announces. John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the side of his Father, he has made him known. So what does this mean in terms of the connection between Christ and the creation of the first human beings? Here's the significance. The very first humans that God created were perfect images of God. Their original righteousness and goodness and sinlessness must have reflected the character and nature of God in a glorious way. That's why in Psalm 8, which we read in the service, verse 5, David says this about the creation of the first human beings. He says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. The first human beings, Adam and Eve, in their original perfect state, were crowned with glory and honor. But we know the story. They sinned. And so Paul picks up that theme connecting sin and glory in Romans 
when he says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what human sin has done. It has robbed everyone of the ability to reflect the glory of God because the image of God in us has been broken and tarnished in so many ways. Listen carefully. This is why most people feel very uncomfortable in their own skin. This is why so many people are afflicted with broken identity issues. Because we are not what we were supposed to be. That brings us to our last theme. The work of Christ in our calling. Because the New Testament looks at salvation as a matter of restoring the image of God in broken sinners. The trajectory of salvation is the glory of God in us. Jesus dies to bear the penalty and the debt of sin. The perfect image of God dies in the place of broken images of God. The last Adam dies for the sake of the fallen children of the first Adam. The eternal Son of God is made a little while lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering that he endured in death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for everyone who would place his faith and trust in him. Now that salvation then involves the restoring of the image of God. And there's two passages in the New Testament that gives us two significant pictures. One, the big picture. Paul describes the big picture of the trajectory of salvation toward glory. Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here is the final destiny of our salvation, that we would be conformed to the image of God's own Son, who is the perfect image of God. And that whole chain of salvation predestination and calling and justification ends with glorification. That's the goal, that we would be fully able to once again reflect the fullness of the glory of God, the God in whose image we have been created and into whose image we are redeemed. In the daily picture, the big picture, then the daily picture given to us in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. Paul writes this way, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, meaning beholding the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ, 
are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, whether you see it, whether you feel it, this is what God is doing with you. In all of the challenges, in all of the hardships, in all of the afflictions, in all of the sufferings of life, God is restoring in you His glorious image and conforming you to the likeness of His Son. Then let the Apostle Paul have the final words. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. But we have this treasure meaning the glory of God being worked out in us toward the image of God's Son. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. To the glory of God. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth. Thank you that the very trajectory of our salvation is that of being restored to the image of your Son, who is the perfect image of you, full of glory, full of grace. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.